listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. After two months reading in the prophet Jeremiah, we get just one week, one reading from the prophet Joel. He's speaking his message into an Israel that has faced years of a devastating infestation of locusts, which has wiped out the crops and left the nation in a state of poverty and hunger. Now, when these prophets stare down crisis, be it social, political, military, or environmental, they inevitably conclude that God has let this happen because Israel has lost sight of its foundational identity as the covenant people of God. Yet, in the prophetic tradition, these characters don't stop at naming the depths of the crisis, but almost inevitably begin to sing of new possibility. That's what Joel is doing here. O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in the Lord your God. In the midst of this disaster, this famine, be glad? Yes, because the threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. You will be brought through this, people of God. You will. Not only that, but afterwards... I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Now, it's not all sunshine and light. There is still Joel's language of portents in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. Yet, he's still insistent that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls. The Hebrew scriptures are shot through with that kind of wild inclusion. This insistence that God intends to meet all who will reach out in longing. Do you know, in spite of that line that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, I honestly wonder what Joel would make of the parable that we heard tonight. The story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, as is often the case with Jesus' parables, you have to pay attention to the setup line. In this case, that line is, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they regarded others with contempt. He then proceeds to tell his story with such broad strokes that it's really a kind of a caricature. It's almost a cartoon. He's got these two characters going up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. The other, a tax collector. Now, from our perspective, and given our familiarity with these kinds of characters in the Gospels, we've been conditioned to hear that word Pharisee and think villain, or maybe hypocrite. 
And then to hear that word, those words tax collector and right away be recalled to all of the places where Jesus deals compassionately with tax collectors. But if you happen to be there in that crowd when this parable was first told, you would be hardwired with a whole different set of assumptions. Tax collector to them meant traitor and con man. Jews who had agreed to collude with the occupying Roman Empire to collect taxes on the empire's behalf, all the while making their living by overcharging the average person and skimming off for themselves a nice percentage to pocket. You just kind of don't get a whole lot lower than that, right? Both trader and con man. Meanwhile, Pharisee meant a member of a movement or a school of thought within Judaism that put emphasis on living righteously and faithfully according to the requirements of the tradition. The Pharisees observed Torah scrupulously. They tithed. They were learned. They provided leadership within the synagogue system. They played by the rules. Oh, sure, they could be sticklers on some things. You could feel a little inferior if your own life didn't quite measure up to their standard of righteousness. But they were a pretty solid bunch. Most contemporary church congregations would be more than happy to welcome a Pharisee or two as they would dutifully tithe, they would lead the adult Bible study, they'd sit on the board, they might even volunteer to preach for free when the pastor was on summer holidays. They'd be great in most church congregations. Give me a Pharisee. That's kind of what they're thinking. So you're in that crowd and you're working with those assumptions. Tax collector's a shyster. Pharisee is an upstanding religious citizen. And you're about to get your doors blown off. Jesus says, the Pharisee standing by himself was praying thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. (laughs) That's a line, eh? I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all of my income. Well, if you're in that crowd, you might be squirming a little bit as Jesus caricatures that attitude. Thank you that I'm not like those sort of people. And you can almost imagine this Pharisee sort of looking down his nose at that poor tax collector standing off to the side. Then Jesus continues with his picture, this time the tax collector. As he says, standing with his head bow and beating his breast, he says, he prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, if you're in that original crowd, you're thinking, where is he going with this one? Where is this story going? Well, it's heading straight to the punchline which is actually only hilarious if you've begun to figure out both who this Jesus is, but also something about your own self. Here's the punchline. I tell you, 
This tax collector went down to his home justified rather than the Pharisee. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. It is a hilarious punchline. If, like that tax collector, you happen to have a clue about the pieces in your own life that are shipwrecked, It's also hilarious if you happen to know that even if you're managing to get some things very right, if you are managing to live with some level of rightness in your life, that's actually not the key to anything. I like how the the preaching scholar David Loos puts it. He says, The Pharisee's prayer of gratitude may be spoken to the Lord, but it's really about himself. The Pharisee locates his righteousness entirely in his own actions and being. And apparently, he believes that's enough. Funny, though, how he actually misses the the deep problem of his own arrogance, his own bloody-minded and smug certainty that in and of himself he's actually got it made. He's totally blind to that, isn't he? And meanwhile, off trots the tax collector, forgiven and even called justified. Where do you suppose he's headed, that tax collector? Well, Jesus says he heads home. But where beyond that? Back to work the next morning? Jesus just won't go there. He won't go there, in fact, any more than he'll tidy up the parable of the prodigal son by showing how wonderfully reformed that younger brother has become, allowing that resentful older brother to release his grudge and offer forgiveness. Nope. And Jesus just leaves these kinds of things hanging, quite probably so that the parables will continue to kind of push us and challenge our assumptions. We'd love to think that a tax collector like this one in the parable would reform if he feels forgiven. Just as the real-life tax collector Zacchaeus vows to do. But here, Robert Capon wonders if that only shows that we are, quote, bent on destroying the story, effectively sending the tax collector back for his second visit with the Pharisee's speech in his pocket. See, Lord, I'm doing it right now. Now I'm fasting and tithing. Now I'm doing an honest day's work, not like all the tax collectors I used to work with. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that had any tax collector in that world asked Jesus if he should change his profession and put his life back on the rails, Jesus probably would have said, Yes, you know the commandments. I also think that were any of us to ask God if we should deal honestly with our own taxes or keep from lying to our spouses or act more charitably to that nasty character who lives next door, knock off our prejudiced opinions and go the extra mile when we're faced by someone else's hurts and needs, if we ask God if we should do those things, God would suggest that simply by asking the questions, it's clear that we know we should. But, and here's Robert Capon again, what God really says in Christ 
is that human goodness isn't enough to do this trick. Human goodness cannot reconcile the world. Basically, if the world could have been reconciled by good advice from God, to which human goodness would respond, the world's problems would have been solved ten minutes after Moses got down to the bottom of the mountain with the commandments. Everyone would have read the commandments and said, oh yes, of course, and the problems would have been over. But the problems weren't over. The problems weren't put to rest, were they? And sometimes even our goodnesses, our goodnesses, like that of the Pharisee in the parable, can become only the thinness of veils over whole new levels of badness, like the Pharisee's arrogance. Arrogant smugness or self-satisfied righteousness or self-justifying rationalizations Whatever, we're experts at it. Which is why this parable's punchline really should make us laugh. And laugh with sheer delight over the absurdity of all of our presumptions and the wild gift that is the grace of God. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to ask you to remain seated and Mike has written a song for us to sing kind of in response to this parable. So we'll do that before we have the prayers.
You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.